From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terranforma. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. My name is Andy Silva, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and storytelling. I'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terranforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6. The historic and present-day territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples. It is important we acknowledge the people who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. This week, we're going to revisit another archive episode as we navigate a world in quarantine. First of all, I just want to say that I hope you're keeping safe and healthy during the social distancing period. Our team is working hard to still bring you interesting perspectives from previously aired episodes. So please bear with us as we record and edit episodes from our home. We are living in challenging times, and we are all trying to find ways to stay grounded and connected to one another at some capacity, and this is something that's very personal and we all do it in different ways. For me, I try to always find beauty in art, especially in literature. I've been taking some time to catch up on my reading list and also rereading some of my favorite books. For this reason, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit the episode Literature in the Face of Climate Crisis, where Terranformer Sophia Osborne interviews Dr. Carolyn Sale. Dr. Sale is an associate professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, and she taught a course on Shakespeare and the ecological crisis. Also, we'll listen to Terranformer Sidney Kerbonik, reading a paper she wrote about how storytelling and fiction can relate to climate action. But before we get to that, here are this week's headlines. Massive deep-sea animal off the coast of Australia baffles scientists. Earlier this month, Researchers at the Schmidt Ocean Institute share the footage of a very interesting sea creature. Its official name is Siphonophore apolemia, and it looks like a weird stringy thing floating around the Pacific Ocean. And you might be asking yourself, okay, so what's so special about this animal? Well, it could very well be the longest animal in the planet. The creature is actually a massive ribbon made out of tiny ocean-dwelling organisms called zooids. They are genetically identical and spend their lives functioning as one single organism. Smaller specimens have been found and studied before, but the organism in question here really baffled scientists just by virtue of being so long. While it hasn't been officially measured yet, Scientists who made the discovery estimate that the outer ring alone could measure 47 meters, making it potentially the longest animal on the planet. 
Tennessee's tree planting season threatened as coronavirus outbreak forces the industry to rethink their strategy. Despite being considered an essential service in the province of British Columbia, reforestation efforts have been delayed until May 4th. This year, the industry had projected a record-breaking 310 million of trees planted. Now, the planting program is at risk. Along with COVID-19, recent wildfires, pine beetle outbreaks, and extensive logging have also posed a major threat to government and First Nations communities in the area. Some measures have been drafted to ensure the safety and well-being of the workers. Isolation will happen in groups to minimize the negative effects of mental health, such as loneliness. Workers won't be allowed to leave on their days off, and visits to nearby towns will need to be scheduled in advance. Potential transmission of the virus to First Nations communities is also an important topic of discussion, as local leaders have advised against interactions between tree planters and members of the community. The proposed guidelines are still waiting for a response from the ministry and provincial health officials. River and coastal flooding threat could increase in the next decade. An analysis released by the World Resources Institute points out that the rate of river flooding could more than double by the year 2030. By the same year, coastal and river flooding is forecasted to impact 147 million people worldwide and cause over $700 billion in damages to urban properties. In Canada, specifically, it is forecasted that 340,000 people could be affected by flood by the end of the decade. And that's a 70% increase from the number of people affected in 2010. Climate change plays a major role in that increase. It intensifies rainfall from atmospheric rivers, and it expands the duration of the heavy rain season. Researchers also say that, yes, there is work to be done in order to mitigate damages from floods, but there is still hope. Investment in flood prevention shows promise in several parts of the world. For example, in India, for every $1 spent in preventative measures, a total of $248 in flood damages could be prevented. This is also a particularly interesting time to be talking about flood prevention as governments struggle to reignite sectors of the economy. Investment in proper infrastructure could have the dual purpose of preventing damages from future floods and it also creates jobs. Getting people back outside and working is in the forefront of everyone's minds, and building the correct drainage and sewage system is one way to do it. And now we'll listen to Sophia Osborne interviewing Dr. Carolyn Sale about the intersection between Shakespearean literature and the climate crisis. Dr. Sale dives into the topic of how humanities can help us understand different cultural contexts through troubling times and frame issues in a way that encourages action. Would you want to just introduce yourself quickly? Sure. I'm Carolyn Sale. I'm an associate professor in the Department of English and Film Studies. I've been teaching here since 2006. And I mostly teach Shakespeare. 
Right? Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. So you're um, you're teaching a 400 level English course come fall yes. on Shakespeare and ecological crisis. Right. What inspired you to create this course? Well, um, you know, as you probably know, we have the 300 level courses in Shakespeare, right? Where you sort of take, I take students through a set of five plays, right? Just to sort of introduce them to Shakespeare. The fourth year seminars in the department give us the opportunity to do something more unusual, right? So this is a course premised on the opportunity we're going to do something a little bit more in depth with Shakespeare. And we're going to do it in relation to the pressing issue of this historical moment, that of ecological crisis. It just seemed like I had to, like if I was going to teach a fourth-year seminar at this moment, that's what it needed to be. Yeah, for sure. <sighs> and so could you could you tell the listeners a bit more about what your plan is for the course? I know you're still working mm-hmm. on it over the summer. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, so I'll be designing it, all the details over the summer. But the basic premise is this, right? So we know what the problem is that we're being confronted with in terms of a crisis that is threatening the planet and humanity, right? So how is it, why is it that we're not able to act appropriately in relation to that crisis? How does a course in the humanities help us think about our inability to act so that we prime ourselves to act? I think all education in the humanities is about priming people to be actors in the world, right? We conventionally talk about that in terms of citizenry, right? But how do we act in relation to this crisis? How does education at this moment in a humanities classroom help with that? Yeah, could you talk a bit more about that? Because I feel like on Terra Informa, a lot of the time we talk to, you know, scientists, people doing environmental studies, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, and a lot of uh, <clears throat> us Terra Informers who are, who are doing these interviews are in those fields as well. But yes. I'm an English student, and I think there's a lot that can be can be done through English to tackle this crisis. Right. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the whole point is we know what the science is, right? We've known what the science is for 40 years, right? So one of the, as I'm saying, one of the, the tasks of the humanities is, be, is in part to be able to translate what's going on in terms of scientific investigation, discovery, diagnoses, and then be able to translate into meaningful action in terms of social organization, right? Because this is, this is a problem of social organization that we don't know yet how to organize ourselves in relation to nature and its resources in ways that sustain nature properly and sustain us properly. So what do you think studying Shakespeare can bring to this yes. discussion or making people well, act? I mean, that's exactly it. What's the combination then about, right? Okay, so we know what the problem is. The course will help us think a little bit more deeply about the problem, that that's part of it too, right? So that we're trying to try and shape our sense of the problem and then, yeah, bring Shakespeare to the question of how to address it. So Shakespeare, what does Shakespeare bring to the table? Shakespeare is writing at the moment in English history, right, in which key developments are taking place in relation to our relationship to resources, right, the relationship to land, the relationship to nature, right? So one of the things Shakespeare in particular helps us do is understand the historical roots of our moment, historical roots of ecological crisis, right? So a play like As You Like It, for example, helps us understand things like what's happening with land management, with relationships to land, what's the space of the forest like, what's happening in the theatrical forest, how is that about some sort of attempt to establish a different relationship to nature than exists in what Rosalind calls the working day world outside the forest, right? So that's part of it, understanding Shakespeare's historical specificity, right? How does Shakespeare help us understand the roots of the problem? But then so much of Shakespeare is about questions of social organization, right, and how to act. 
right? Most notoriously Hamlet. But, you know, and Hamlet will probably be on the list, right? So then the question is, yeah, how does Shakespeare understand, help us understand the problem? But how does Shakespeare also create capacity for dealing with the problem, right? So it's both sort of what we would call a historical or historicist approach, but also what's known as in academic circles as a presentist approach, right? How does Shakespeare really help us now in this moment? How does the writing continue to act now if we study it in certain ways, right? If we enliven it in certain ways. Right. And so what do you hope that students will get out of the course? Because I assume that there will be quite a few different types of students in the class, like those who are you know, Shakespeare buffs yes. and people who are more interested in, you know, eco-criticism. And that That's kind of what thing. I'm really hoping too, right? Mm-hmm. So that students who maybe may, don't otherwise take a course in the humanities will go out of their way to take this, right? Because it carves out some time and space to be thinking about these issues. Um, I'm hoping that many students will want to seize the opportunity to do something unusual in terms of their final assignment, right? So I'm going to structure it. it. Technically, it's supposed to be a seminar, right? So we'll try and create a seminar environment, right? But you can build either towards a final research paper, a sort of conventional research paper, or, I don't know, something unusual, right? Where we can take seriously this notion that education in the humanities should be about priming us to act in the world. And so... Students who are either working, willing to work on their own or in teams to do something unusual by way of some kind of active communication, right? And I, I don't, I'm keeping it very loose in the way I'm imagining it, right? So some kind of public active communication that relates to the course concerns. Could be a video, could be a blog post, could be something I'm not even beginning to imagine, which is why I don't want to sort of... Um, constrain what what students might imagine, right? But there will be that opportunity, in other words, to do something unusual in terms of final assignment. Definitely. I've noticed that a lot more in my classes, that it oh, yeah. seems to be that professors are really opening it up if you want to do something more creative or more aimed at like a more general audience rather than just yes. specifically academic, yes. which I think is really um, a powerful tool. I mean, as yes. someone who's interested in journalism as right. well, but... Um, yeah, when we're thinking about these issues that really aren't just academic issues. Yes. Well, and think about how this particular issue is being transformed at the moment by the actions of a, a single girl, a teenager, right, who came up with an idea, a communicative idea, and has gotten the world's attention, right? Mm-hmm. So, so part of the premise, of course, is how is, yeah, t- thinking about, you know, a certain set of Shakespeare plays in relation to some eco-critical writing on Shakespeare, but also some of this activity that is going on. Like, let's take seriously what Greta Thunberg is doing. Let's take seriously writers like David Wallace Wells. Let's take seriously the, the work of the lovely Polly Higgins, who died just a few days ago, right, at the age of 50, right, young. And yet here was somebody who was fighting for new law, right, law that would make ecocide a crime. So it's that combination that the course is going to be aiming for. Some, you know, Shakespeare's at the center, but maybe all this other stuff too that helps us think about what con- what acts of communication in this moment might true might help us avert what science is telling us cannot be averted at this moment, right? So there's still that sort of degree of optimism on certain fronts, but if that degree of optimism is to be taken seriously and truly translate into the averting of the worst of this crisis, we, humanity is going to have to act. So what forms of action are necessary? What can be done? That's that's really interesting because I do think that there's that kind of stigma around humanities. Uh, and even I think maybe 
specifically around courses that deal with things like Shakespeare? Like, you yes. know, you, when your your mom is sort of like, what are you actually learning uh, in that class? Right. Are you just, you know, memorizing Shakespeare? Yes. And I think pairing Shakespeare with some, with, you know, ecological yes. crisis, like the, the biggest problem facing our generation right now, that really right. illuminates what you can learn from studying these texts. Right. Yes. Is there anything you wanted to say more specifically about what you think Shakespeare can teach us about ecological crisis? Yeah, maybe we'll give you one sort of tantalizing example or tidbit, right? So when we think about a play like The Tempest, what it very conspicuously does, it gives us a utopic imagining of other possibilities, right? And that's one of literature's roles, right? Is to imagine what does not exist. But what, of course, Shakespeare does with that particular play is show us exactly the kind of forces that make the um, achievement of the utopic possibilities difficult. So in that sense, we sort of get the package, right? We get the utopic ideas, like what, it w- what we get the opportunity to think about what it is we might desire and why we should desire it, right, in terms of different social organization, even as Shakespeare very nicely anatomizes. So that's one of his favorite words, right, to anatomize something. He anatomizes for us, like, what is standing in the way, of achieving this lovely, this pretty thing, this pretty vision of how things might be, right? So we get that sort of double aspect, right? Because you really can't bring about major change if you can think outside the box. We know that, right? Because then the, the, if, if we can't do that, the conditions that obtain will continue to obtain, right? So you have to have the pretty other vision of what is possible. But you can only work towards it realistically if you understand what is standing in the way <laughs> of getting to that lovely vision. Mm-hmm. And I happen to think that Shakespeare very nicely does both for us. That probably has, it's probably a good way of explaining his enduring impact. Yeah, that is interesting. Because that really is the goal of literature mm-hmm. in a lot of ways is that thinking outside of the box. Mm-hmm. I, what you know, one of the things, of course, we'll do is try and take us though towards some of the ugliness, you know, the ugly aspects of Shakespeare that show us, you know, when you can't achieve the better things, just how diabolical things will become. And so we will almost certainly study Lear, for example, for that for that purpose, right? That's one of the functions of tragedy. So I'm just sort of flipping it, right? So yes, we look to literature for pretty imaginings of what is possible. One of the functions of tragedy is to show us what lies ahead in a dire way if we if we persist in a certain course of inaction in this case, right? So we'll be we'll be ranging across genre, right? So we can be both optimistic. And then terribly pessimistic and maybe really optimistic in the end because we've dealt with the we, – we've confronted the real problems because, as I say, that's the only way forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that is interesting because I, I have taken a few – especially in um, in science, like a planet in crisis, courses yes. like that. And they can get extremely depressing. Right. And it is a depressing issue, but yes. there is also some hope as well. Right. People like Greta, like you said, right. I think really inspire yes. hope. And I think also to know that this is something people have been yes. thinking about for so long, even yes. Shakespeare, you know? Yes. And, uh, you know, just one last note about Greta. I mean, she has very nicely captured it in that most recent speech of hers to those MPs in England, right, where she basically says, you did not act in time, right? So there's both the diagnosis but also the condemnation, right, so that there's no getting away from it. And then she still manages to move towards something optimistic, right? Mm-hmm. She, well, I'm trying to remember what her lovely metaphor was. Oh, yes, that we must imagine, we must think of ourselves as building a cathedral, 
right? In other words, it's, this is about long-term solution, long-term planning, right? So that lovely juxtaposition that she has, maybe that'll be a kind of touchstone for the course. We have to desi- We have to be able to establish why have we not been acting? Why can we ignore evidence, right? Because it's really a terrible predicament for humanity. How can we really not face up to this 40 years of evidence on the scientific front, right? What is, as so again, what is keeping us from acting? And yet if we don't hold out to some optimism, then everyone's just going to collapse at some there's There's just going to be a new form of inaction, a new form of terrible passivity, right? So it's lovely that we have somebody like Greta Thunberg managing to write to capture both aspects of the problem. Okay, well, if there's nothing else you want to add... um, I think we've covered it. Yes, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you again to Sophia Osborne and Dr. Carolyn Sale. Now, we'll listen to Terran farmer Sidney Karbonik reading a piece she wrote about how fiction and storytelling can relate to climate action and the environmental movement. Neil Everton, in the seminal piece, The Eco-Criticism Reader, is quoted saying, It is a matter of considerable concern to me that the sector of society we designate as the arts and humanities seems to play so minor a role in the environmental movement. It explains in part the one-sidedness of environmental arguments and their tendency to contain the seeds of the movement's destruction. The more we look around the world today, the more and more we see ever-present and deep-rooted binaries, masculine, feminine, mind, matter, science, art, and culture, nature. Binaries aren't all bad. They help us make sense of the world, but they also impose a restrictive and narrow-minded mold on the human brain. Binaries, therefore, create disconnects, When we look at an interconnected world through a lens of binaries, we inevitably run into problems. One of the most popular examples of this is the culture-nature binary. Humans have been historically evicted from their natural environment. This has created negative externalities on each of the constructed binaries. This happens because each discipline ignores the needs, reciprocities, and connections it has to the other. The issue, then, is how to dismantle these boundaries, or at the very least, make humanity aware of these restricted binaries, so we can navigate a world through a wider lens. One argument is that literary fiction, particularly environmental dystopian novels, is one of the better ways to dismantle these binaries. Present-day society is experiencing an information overload. As a result, you see things such as the rise of positivist ideals or fact-checking websites. The truth is being watered down with opinion and even lies from political leaders. In the face of these complexities, literary fiction can be a powerful form of activism. Literary fiction does not pretend to be reality, yet it is based on reality. This provides writers a happy medium to be creative and change perspectives. On the other hand, scientific literature requires a focused and specified look at an issue. 
And despite the recent demand for interdisciplinary research, the complexity of this science makes proper execution difficult and time-consuming. In their article, Material Ecocriticism, Materiality, Agency, and Models of Narrativity, Sirenella Inovino explains that literary fiction provides an important avenue for influence and agency. It has the ability to depict an otherwise, quote, unmappable landscape of interacting biological, climactic, economic, and political forces. How else can members of society make sense of the interconnections of life than with none other than our own narratives? If you want a perfect example of this, read Emily St. John Mandel's novel, Station Eleven. It is the perfect example of how literature can dismantle binaries. The novel's main message is that the world is an interconnected ecosystem. She demonstrates this by jumping through space and time to show humans before and after a tragedy, as well as how their actions, values, and beliefs came to be. Joseph W. Meeker explains in his book that the tragedy narrative is a powerful form of activism. He says this because it is, quote, inclusive of the values of the civilizations that produced it. No other literary form incorporates metaphysical, moral, social, and emotional attitudes in a matrix as tightly unified as tragedies. None has more clearly expressed human ideals or measured their implications. So for these reasons, a tragedy narrative has the potential to uncover humanity's true life necessities, that is, the things that not only make life livable, but also enjoyable. Environmental dystopian novels, in particular, hold a mirror up to the reader. Joseph Meeker explains this. He says, It holds a mirror up with an impeccably sharp resolution and high selectivity. Its image of humanity is a genuine reflection of our deepest and most significant qualities. Herein lies the agentic power of the tragedy narrative. So, all in all, the world is full of binaries. The most predominant and most destructive binary, arguably, is the cultured nature binary. This binary has been the root cause of the diverse and deeply rooted social environmental issues plaguing our world today. Environmental dystopian fiction novels disrupt these binaries and are an effective form of activism. Literary fiction has the ability to depict narratives that humans can connect to. This provides a medium to change individuals' perspectives. Individuals have the opportunity to momentarily leave their social structure and enter a narrative with different social and environmental ideas, ideas they would have otherwise been unable to experience. With the contemporary world being more and more complex, for better or for worse, scientific literature has not proven to be the most effective way of creating social environmental action. Real action is created from stories, from life, from beauty and art, and showing the interconnectedness of all of these. And that's all the time we have for today. 
To hear more stories like the one he did today, visit our website, www.terrainforma.ca, subscribe on iTunes, and follow us on Spotify. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a studio located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at terra at cjsr.com or tweet us. A big thank you to all of the volunteers and contributors that helped with today's show. Thank you to Dr. Carolyn Sale and to Sydney Carbonic as well. I've been your host, Andy Silva. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you here next week at Terra Informa.